Today's reading is Colossians chapter 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. It can be found on page 1089 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we uh, come into this room from all different places, all different kinds of experiences this week, we invite you to speak to us. Um, Whether we come with lots of doubts, questions, maybe some of us feeling like we're um, on the last thread or two of hope that we might find um, what our hearts have been longing for in a place like a church. Some of us may be wondering why we're here at all. What what led to us walking into this place? Um, and others of us maybe come from very different places, whether it's a boredom or a, a, a slow spiritual downturn that we realize, we, we wonder if you'll ever be real again like you once were, or maybe just a great experience of your faithfulness. We feel grateful. We have a capacity to thank you that we never had before because you've answered prayers. It's, it's astonishing how many different places we come from, and yet, in, in an essential way, we're all the same. And when we enter into this time and this story of Scripture, we're invited to see ourselves as all in the same boat, needing your grace every second, every moment of our lives. We're more of a mess than we want other people to know. And you've shown us through the Scriptures that through your son Jesus, you take on our mess and you move towards broken lives and imperfect people with forgiveness and mercy. And our souls long for that. We thirst for it in a way that um, makes us come in here in the first place. So will you meet us with that grace and speak to us? Answer our heart's need. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we have uh, any... 30 Rock fans out there. Anybody? 
so if you, if you like the show 30 Rock, what's you got any a favorite character? What's your favorite character on 30 Rock? Anyone? Is there, what's that? Ken, oh, yep. You stole mine. Definitely Kenneth. Yep. Kenneth is good. Um, Tracy Jordan's a good one, too. Um, you probably wouldn't pick this as your favorite character. Um, Jack Donaghy, right? He's the, I wanted to talk about Jack Donaghy because he's this interesting picture of leadership. And if you don't know the show, I, I can't, I don't even know that I can summarize it. So I'm just going to use um, Alec Baldwin, the actor. I'm going to use his words and describe the character he plays, uh, the CEO of, I think it's a NBC, right? It's supposed to be NBC and he's a CEO. Um, so this is Alec Baldwin talking about Jack, Jack Donaghy, his character. He says, <clears throat> he's from the Patton School of Leadership. You don't ask, you tell. You don't stand around and wait to see how, many, how people feel about it. You don't sit down with everyone in human resources meeting and hold hands to make sure everyone is okay with the orders that you're giving. This guy's very old school. He goes on and says, um, basically in the voice of Jack Donaghy, he says, if everyone would just do what I tell them to do, when I tell them to do it, the way I tell them to do it, everything would be fine. And you would benefit too. All of you would benefit if you would just listen to what I say. So that... That's a big chunk of what Alec Baldwin says is his, you know, the character that he produces. That basically comes off feeling very arrogant, you know, and um, very uncaring and kind of this big shot who's just oblivious. He's got blinders on to everybody else. And unfortunately, what, what, why I bring that up is because I think it's a caricature of leadership that's funny to us, and it's only funny because it's got a measure of truth. I mean, I think all of us, to some degree, have had some exposure to a leader like that. And unfortunately, with just in talking to people over the years, I get a lot of stories of people getting some hint of that or some experience of that, sometimes very painful experiences of that, from church leadership. That same kind of Jack Donaghy-esque type of leadership. And I can't help think about that when you know these studies come out, the recent studies now of um, saying that 44% of those polled in our, in our country say that they've, they've given up on having any confidence in, in church or organized religion or spiritual leadership. <clears throat> and yet at the same time, you'd say, okay, well, that's 44% have given up. 90% of those same people polled say, oh, yeah, God, spirituality, praying every day, sure, yeah, 90%. So what's going on? A lot of people are basically saying, um, okay, well, I don't know that I, I want to play the follow the leader game anymore. You know, God, spirituality, yeah, it's all good, but I can go alone. Uh, the climate really is that um, we're encouraged, I think, in today's world to pursue spiritual self-employment. That's kind of the way to go about things. We're good with God, organized institutions, traditional church, we've lost hope, we've lost faith. And today, so as we're getting into this book of Colossians, and we move uh, and we're transitioning with this very text that we're reading from chapter 1 to chapter 2, we're actually getting an opportunity to consider what we lose if we throw out the whole thing of a sense of true, real, human spiritual leadership in your life, you know, getting beyond the just 
oh no, I have a connection to God and that's enough and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. What do you lose when you throw aside human spiritual leadership? And there's three things that, uh, basically Paul, as Paul's talking, as he's writing this letter, these things are coming out and three of them that we're looking at are that first of all you lose someone contending for you, second of all you lose someone seeking your maturity, and third you lose someone seeking your unity. <clears throat> so, point one, in a Christian leader you have someone who contends for you, someone who contends for you. And when Paul is talking in verse 29 of what we read, he says that he's strenuously, he strenuously contends with all his energy for the people that he's ministering to, basically is what he's saying. Um, let me just, I can't help talk about uh, spiritual leadership in the church without tapping into the big analogy for leadership that we find in the Bible, which is that of a shepherd. In fact, the, the Latin word that we get the word pastor from is the word shepherd. It goes all the way back throughout the whole Bible. The idea of leadership is best shown uh, in the idea of a shepherd. Um, and there's a book that um, I find fascinating. It's by an, written by an actual shepherd who also is a Christian and a spiritual leader. And so he writes about how his understanding when he was a shepherd in the eastern side of Africa, in you know, one of the few places that people actually you know, go with the ancient style of shepherding. And he learns all these things about that. And then he reads scripture again, and it comes alive in a new way. This is what he says about what sheep start to learn about their shepherd. He says, it used to amaze and intrigue visitors to my ranches to discover that my sheep were so indifferent to their voices. Occasionally, I would invite them to call my sheep using the same words or phrases that I habitually employed, but it was to no avail. The sheep would simply stand and stare at the newcomers in rather blank bewilderment as if to say, who are you? This is simply, he says, because over a period of time, over a period of time, sheep come to associate the sound of the shepherd's voice with special benefits. When the shepherd calls to them, it is for a specific purpose that has their best interest in mind. That's what it all comes down to, right? That's where a lot of trust has been shattered and broken down. Does, does this person, if I put myself in a position of being led, will this person, go? will they handle that well? Will they have my best interest in mind? Or will they just be looking out for their own. And because shepherds, <clears throat> the nature of this analogy is that shepherds have the interests of the sheep in mind, they end up taking a lot on a lot of stuff that ends up looking a whole lot like suffering. Paul himself, as uh, this, early, this leader in this period of the early church, he had an abnormally extensive amount of suffering that he came upon in being a leader. And when he is commissioned to be a leader, in this Damascus Road experience, as people often refer to it, when he goes from being not a Christian to being a Christian, and not only that, but he's given this calling to be the one that's going to be a, a shepherd, bringing the message to all these people throughout the non-Jewish world. This is what God says in the midst of that call. Talking about Paul, he says, Go, this man is my chosen servant to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
And then this very intriguing thing, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right there with Paul's commissioning to be, to have this new shepherding role in the church, is this mention of suffering. And what that gets at is that uh, suffering and the struggle of leadership, suffering really starts to become the, really an authenticating and a legitimizing part of a leader showing that they have others' interests in mind, not just their own. I mean, we see it in this letter that we're reading today where Paul's actually, he's not a leader that they know in person. He hasn't visited the, the town of Colossae yet, or the city of Colossae. They don't really know him, but they know of him. He's a bit of a legend. And the man, Epaphras, who has gone and started the church in Colossae and began talking and gathering folks and they began praying and began meeting together and living selflessly in a whole new countercultural way. As this is all happening, Paul doesn't know any of them. They don't know him. Epaphras knows him. He's been mentored by him. Um, but so you imagine Paul's writing to them and he's writing now. This whole letter comes. He's in prison. And he's in prison for the, just the very reason of being someone who is a leader in the church. And because of what that has meant as he's gone town to town and the accusations that have come his way, he finds himself in prison. So he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. He brings up that word again that goes back to his very calling as a leader. And it's interesting, the very last words of this letter. He says, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains? I think Paul's, Paul knows the strength of the legitimizing factor of suffering. What do you look for to know that someone is just in it for themselves as a leader? Well, they're coming out with the advantage, right? They're coming out with the perks. They're, they're kind of stepping up on the shoulders of others, you know, Jack Donaghy style. Paul, it, it's just very clear. There's really nothing you can say to try to say he's in it for himself. It, everywhere he turns, he, in service of the church, in service of the gospel going out to new people, he ends up in prison. He suffers. It's something to think about if you have any sense in which you are uh, involved or beginning to be involved in leadership, or even as often happens, there's just a little voice that says, is God drawing me in a direction that someday might look a little bit like Christian service or leadership? Take careful note, somber note of where Paul ends up here. Suffering is a legitimizing factor in someone who contends for you and has your best interests in mind. In fact, Paul regularly, he, he, he ties back to these, these er, the early lingo for leadership in the Christian church. They had these titles, and they were the, absolutely the most non-glamorous titles for leaders in the world. It was slave and servant. Those were the titles thrown around. You know, and, and in our day, you know, we, we don't even realize in a lot of church traditions the word deacon, you know, it kind of has this sound. It's, you know, if you're in one of these traditions, I'm a deacon or I was nominated a deacon. That, that word goes back to that original Greek word that was thrown around to make a very important point, servant. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's very non-glamorous. And Paul, uh, when he refers to Epaphras, he uses both of those words in, in actually in the beginning of the letter, in verse 7. You're a sla- he's a slave. He's a servant of the gospel. Anyway, so Paul's tapping into all of this stuff in this letter. Um, and basically, just to point, just, just because he wants to reiterate what is the point of Christian leadership, that someone is serving other people's interests, and that is absolutely not a recipe for someone getting ahead. That's a recipe if you're serving someone else's interests. It's just kind of like a math formula. You end up suffering. You end up undergoing things you don't, you don't really aren't fun because you're getting in under the burden of others and walking in the ditch with other people. And so, again, with uh, Philip Keller and the whole shepherding analogy, um, he says, he talks about the kind of work that shepherds do for their sheep. He says, again and again, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. Then more often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. At once, I would start to run towards it, hurrying as fast as I could, for every minute was crucial. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy. Fear that it might be too late. Joy that was found at all. Very simple question to ask. Do you have anyone who serves you like that? Do you have anyone in your life who will come looking for you, chasing you down? Where are you? How have you been? That kind of care, that kind of sacrifice to throw everything aside and look for you. Well, I don't know if you've lost hope in even finding that, but the Bible basically says you need it. You just absolutely need that in your life. And that's what you find in a Christian leader as as the Bible describes Christian leadership. Also, in a Christian leader, you have someone, secondly, who has your maturity in sight. If you look at verse 28, Paul uses three verbs that all relate to talking and giving, you know, uh, data to people that he leads. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching. You know, there's those three verbs, proclaiming, admonishing, teaching. Everyone with all wisdom so that, why? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I don't know how you define maturity. I don't know how that would how that would go for you, where your mind goes with that. Mature. What does it mean to be mature? Let me just take a stab at it and say that being mature is knowing who you are and being okay with it. Just try that on. Knowing who you are and being okay with it. Now, a lot of us, I don't know if you've played this game, I, I got asked weird questions like this uh, you know, over a decade ago when I was going to work for a camp as a camp counselor, they interview with silly questions like, what kind of animal would you want to be if you could be any animal, right? And, uh, you know, so I don't know, what we're basically taught culturally, the kinds of ways that we gravitate, we say, I want to be a lion, right? I want to be a cougar. You know, we're not very good with the biblical analogy. Sheep. <laughs> Sheep. We don't pick that one. We pick something like a cougar, you know? And what does that basically mean? What flows out of that? I am independent. I can be self-sufficient. I, I hope to be impressive in what I do, in my contribution to this world. Um, I, what, 
maybe prey on others who are weaker? I don't know. I mean, that's, you start to kind of play this out, and what does that end up, where does that take you? Whereas, what is, what is a sheep? The Bible says, I, I hate to break this to you today, the Bible says you're a sheep. You're a sheep. And what that means is that you belong in a flock. <laughs> this is who you are. Are you okay with it? You belong in a flock. You need leading, and you're terribly, terribly prone to wander. It's a sheep. And you need protection from things like cougars. <laughs> and Paul himself, I, there's a sense in which Paul knows this, and his story shows this. I mean, a, a lot of people have quickly, without digging into things and s- without looking at the real story, have, I don't know if you've been in conversations like this, but people will kind of brush off the Apostle Paul, you know, and just kind of, they've got reasons why, oh, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't, legit, you know, and, but the truth is the more you dig, the more you see, and he, t- what we learn about him, actually, as he was just starting out as a Christian leader, one of the things he did was he put himself be- before all the leaders, kind of the, the known leaders, the guys, you maybe you'd call them the big shots, the legends, the ones who are with Jesus, and he went before them, and he explained, even though he had had this miraculous start, and this miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus appearing to him, and redirecting his journey, and you know, it was a very incredible gift, a miraculous gift that he had been given as a call to ministry. He could have just said, ah, hey, I know I'm right, I can go with that. And but he went before all the leaders of the church and he said, and he explained the gospel that he was, was, as he knew it, he explained the teachings that he had and he said, basically, comment on it. Am I wrong anywhere? What am I missing? What am I not getting? That's part of Paul, the one who's writing this letter. If anyone, if you run into anyone like a le- in a leadership position in your life, anyone you know who basically says in a Christian setting, um, well, you know, at this point in my development as a Christian, I'm really beyond being led. Basically, you know, you can reply, maybe you don't have to be this sarcastic, but you can say, oh, really? <laughs> um, because Paul, of course, is going back to Jesus himself in the tradition grabs hold of Isaiah 53 that explains Jesus as being one who's not only comfortable being a sheep, but becomes a lamb who is led to the slaughter. So you kind of say to yourself when that urge comes up, I don't, I'm okay, I don't need to be led. Are you, are you kind of, are you further along than Jesus? Is there something about you that Jesus's way is, is not good enough for you? You're beyond that? You get this sense, a really strong, just very human sense of this as this letter progresses towards the end. And the greetings start to happen. We're not actually going to deal with this part of the letter specifically um, because you've got to sort of cut something out of a series like this. Otherwise, it goes on forever. So I'll include it today. When in the, in the final greetings, Paul is referencing, I counted, he's referencing up to eight of them who are all you know, servants and slaves and ministers of the gospel they're all leaders in this burgeoning church movement, and they're all together. They're all in league with each other. Many of them have come to visit him in prison and to get mentored by him and by each other. And so he lists that. He, he talks about them and how they all send their greetings, that they're all together. And it reminds me a little bit of how I, I feel extremely fortunate that when I came out of seminary and I didn't know what I was going to do and, and came out here to start a church and found myself in the middle of a group of, of other folks starting churches in the Sacramento area. And so we get together regularly, and it's a chance truly to do 
what you do if you start, if you remember periodically in your journey as a Christian that no matter who you are, you're still a sheep. <laughs> and to be okay with that and to come to the table and say, I need some people in my life who I put my immaturity before them and say, help me see what I'm missing. Am I out of line? Help me process this struggle, this difficult thing in my church. I find myself to have this incredible group of, of uh, about six of us um, who are in it together in that kind of a way. I have a leader, uh, a leader who was one of my mentors at one point. He put it this way. He has somebody still in his life, even though he's twice as old as I am. I have someone still in my life who doesn't think that I'm a big deal. And, uh, you know, he's in a church that's over a thousand people, and he's the lead pastor of all of that, and so you've got all these people saying, oh, he's so gifted with preaching, and he's got so much wisdom, and he's, he's such a great pastor, and he's got supernatural levels of giftedness and this and that, and all these people coming in to, to have the answers, right? And to revere him, and he's got someone in his life who says, yeah, 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 you're a sheep. <laughs> you're a sheep, and you need someone to tell you that once in a while. <clears throat> Um, all right, so let me, let, me, let me just basically summarize and say your spiritual leader needs that. Your spiritual needs that. But your spiritual leader needs that, but so do you. So are you. So, and, and you want to get real practical, and it's sometimes tough to do this. You want to get real practical about this. You look at verse 28 and say, how well are you doing? And having some, remember those three verbs? Having... Uh, in your life that you allow someone to proclaim, to admonish, and to teach you? Have you opened the door to that? Now, thirdly, and this is a little bit of a surprising uh, point, but in a Christian leader, you have someone who has your unity in mind, has unity in mind. Notice how the word unity comes in in verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now you, I don't know, do you think you have some level of maturity? Do you, do you think you have some level of understanding things? Well, basically what this passage is saying is unless you add to whatever maturity you have, whatever understanding you have of faith, unless you add to that a draw, a value for unity, then you don't have what verse 28 ends with. You don't have the full riches of complete understanding in order to know the mystery of God. You come up severely lacking if unity, if the, and this is a little bit of a puzzling point, um, but Paul models this. <clears throat> Paul models this unity when in verse 7, he lifts up Epaphras and says in verse one, verse seven, chapter 1, verse 7, Epaphras is our dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He's pointing to his Connection, tight, solid unity with Epaphras. And he can't help himself, but he does it some more as the letter is coming to a close. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Jesus Christ, sends greetings. He always is wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assume, assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, why is Paul doing this? Because he believes in the church, in the utter importance of, of just the tenacity of being united together. 
Um, what's the threat to this? Why is, why is it so important to be so tenacious about this? Well, we get a, a perfect glimpse of it when he says in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. The, the real enemy, and it's insidious to call it this, but the real enemy of unity turns out to be fine-sounding arguments. There are a hundred fine-sounding arguments that end with you saying, and so I'm going to part ways. And so I'm going to head for the door. And so I don't need this anymore. This is too much for me. And it all sounds fine, and you can find friends who will affirm it. There's a hundred arguments, fine-sounding arguments, that have you heading to the door of Christian community. There is one argument that always has you turning back, and it's the gospel argument. If you can think of uh, two people, I don't know if the actual people come to mind, but if you could think of two people that should not get along, they, I mean, it's impossible. They are like night and day. They, you know, they just, you know, nothing is harder than for these two people to sit in the same room together, and they won't. You just say, you say about them, if you knew these two people, they it's impossible for them to be in the same room together. The gospel argument says, in a church, in the church of Christ, that's the place where they'll sit in the same room together. Why? Because spiritually speaking, in your life, who are the two people? It's you and God. You and God. There, it should be impossible for you and God to be in the same room together. And faced with that dilemma, this is, hey, this is the whole story of the Bible. We talk about this every week. Faced with that dilemma, God says, I'm going to throw aside every fine-sounding argument to part ways and head for the door, and I'm going to make it possible that with all your imperfections, you are welcome and accepted and drawn into my presence. You are loved and drawn in with that kind of unity, that tenacious draw to be connected. And so, and since you're just shown that by God, he shows that to you, that grace. How can you not then, in community, bring that to others? But let me tell you, your, your you know, the, the thread of DNA in your life that has you heading for the door is so strong. That spiritual self-employment is so strong that you need help. You need help with that. Because the problem with fine-sounding arguments is they sound fine, <laughs> right? Pretty simple. It's just built into the word. So you need leaders who aren't, who, who aren't readily downsizing others or other leaders as a way of legitimizing themselves. And you need examples of people tenaciously fighting to stick together. Um, I hope that you don't lose hope in finding leaders who will show you that. Um, and I hope you'll find it. Uh, just like Tony Hendra, the, one of the most kind of cynical uh, persons ever, and he wrote for the National Lampoon and regularly... Um, kind of just brush-stroked away all institutional, organized religion. Turns out he writes this book called Father Joe, The Man Who Saved My Soul. This is what he writes about his spiritual leader. I hope you'll find this in your own life. 
To some he was a father, to some a mother. He always did what was appropriate and practical for the person he was with. There weren't two kinds of people in the world for Joe, nor three, nor ten. Just people. He was the prophet of the possible. He soothed the damaged, nurtured the tortured, and reassured the imperfect. Let's pray. God of grace, would you help us as we need great humility even in putting ourselves into situations where we'll be led? And would you um, also teach those of us who have an inkling towards leadership or who even through, even today, you might be sparking something new and afresh in a leader's heart here today. Walk the journey with us and help us to stay tenaciously united in love um, that we may be a place where both good leading and good following could happen and that others might come along and see it happening and say, I can have hope again, that I, I, I might be led in a community of faith to figure out who I am and to receive the grace of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we um, move towards the musical offering and cans will come around for our, um, our actual offering to God as a part of worship, um, you're invited into this prayer to frame this time, and I just want you to know that this is an act of worship, and it's not intended as a moment of pressure if you're visiting or if you're newer to our community. But we do, you are invited to frame this um, spiritually for what it is through this prayer. I invite you to do so with me. Almighty God, giver of every good and perfect gift, teach us to render to you all that we have and all that we are, that we may praise you, not with our lips only, but with our whole lives, turning the duties, the sorrows, and the joys of all our days into a living sacrifice to you, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat>